Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We are joined today by Sir Alan Akeborn. Alan has uh, developed a very well-known uh, following as both a playwright and a director. More than 60 shows, something like maybe bordering on 70 shows, Alan? 69. 69 and counting. And counting. <laughs> Alan is a very noted playwright and director who has a show that has just opened here in New York at the Brits Off-Broadway at 59 East 59, a brand new theater. It's about a little more than a year old, a show called Private Fears in Public Places. And in the upcoming Manhattan Theater Club season here again in New York, Absurd Person Singular, I should note also that Alan has had seven different shows playing on Broadway over the past uh, several decades by Jeeves, the most recent in 2001, A Small Family Business, Taking Steps, The Norman Conquest, Absurd Person Singular, and How the Other Half Lives. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. Alan, um, I guess you consider yourself mostly a playwright and also a director, but playwright comes first on your bio. Just about, because the play comes first. But uh, in fact, these days, um, I, I used to have two separate careers, that of playwright and director, and never the twain met because people considered it wasn't right to direct your own work. But uh, that, that stopped after about 10 years, and ever since I've directed all the premieres of all my work, uh, both in Scarborough and in London. So when you write, do you write with the direction in mind, or does the direction come after you get the basic storyline down? Since you're doing both, writing and directing. It's difficult to tell. I, I, I really don't know these days when a play starts, uh, wh whether it starts as a writer and the director creeps in the back door. It's certainly, um, I believe very much that, that a playwright's responsibility is, is beyond the text. It's, it belongs also in the visual. So I write, I guess, for myself as a, as a director as well. Um, certainly when I go into the rehearsal room, I, I'm... I'm I'm still the same person. So, but when, you, when you're going through the creative, the writing process, are you also visualizing mentally as a director might how it's going to be staged? Yes, I am. And I, I do tend to solve problems as I go and, uh, and occasionally throw myself challenges as a director. Well, I was going to say, you, you're, you've written so many sort of puzzle plays that you, either you're trying to, to pull a prank on other people who will be directing your work, but with a show like House and Garden where literally the same story is being played out in two separate plays being performed simultaneously in two side-by-side -side theaters with the actors crisscrossing between them. A play like Taking Steps which takes place on three floors of the same uh, building but the actors are all playing it on the same level. These are incredibly intricate puzzles. They are, and I think I think what interests me is is playing with time and space. Um, I think I think often, um, uh, I mean, if theatre has a role today, it seems to me not to try and intrude upon film or television or the the, the recorded media, where where technical uh, effects are much more easily achieved at, at great expense, mind you. But the, but you can have the equivalent of that by involving the audience in 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 conceits, if you like. I, I, I don't do these in order to baffle an audience. I, I do them, I hope, to intrigue them and to involve them. I but mean, it's, it's less baffling to an audience, perhaps, than if indeed you were only writing these and handing them off to someone else to stage. They, they've got to be in your head about how they're going to work. Oh, sure. I couldn't have written, written House and Garden uh, without having a very clear idea about 
well, time. I mean, I didn't cheat on that. When I first wrote it for the Scarborough Theatre, I asked my stage manager to walk from one theatre, we have two theatres there, from one theatre to the other and tell me, without running, how long it took her. And she said it, it took me actually one minute, 22 seconds, walking slowly. And I said, well, OK, we'll round that up to one thirty, one minute 30. I will try to keep my actors... The idea of the play, by the way, just for those who don't know, was that an actor would appear in the first theatre and say something like, I'm just taking the dog for a walk. He would then walk out through the French windows, and a few moments later, one minute, 30 seconds later, he would arrive at the second theatre and enter with the dog, or with the sound of the dog barking. So I, I didn't cheat on that. I tried to keep those cross entrances fairly mm -hmm. tight on... Otherwise, you know, you know, an actor would have gone off and been off for about five minutes and then <laughs> wandered on, and that, that, that seemed to me not very interesting. And the point of the play from the audience's point of view was, was, was to int be intrigued enough to say, I saw the man leaving with his dog. I want to see tonight or tomorrow. I want to see him arriving in the other theater with his dog. Um, and the two stories then begin to mesh together. And that seems to build on your very famous trilogy, The Norman Conquests, in which the idea was that people in these three separate plays with the same group of people on the same country house, that the idea was that they were going out of one play and into another, but that wasn't done with the technical proficiency of actually having the actors cross. No, in fact, somebody tried to run all three together. Uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, there, there, are, there are time discrepancies. Um, I, I never intended that they be run simultaneously, whereas House and Garden is always intended that way. And, uh, in, in fact, um, you know, it doesn't make real sense unless, unless they're rehearsed separately. But the big crunch for us came when I um, had, to, uh, had to run them together uh, the first time we did it. And, uh, you know, I didn't actually see what the actors were doing. I was just gazing at my watch and looking looking at the door, waiting for actor A to come from the other theater through that door in time to pick up his cue, uh, which was quite nerve-wracking. <laughs> and hoping they would get there in the allotted time. Yeah, we had a thing called the, the emergency dog, which we never used. I said, <laughs> uh, I said if anybody's kind of running late, then, then cue the stage manager and we'll play a, a special effect. And I said to the actors, if, you, if you're in the middle of a speech and a dog starts barking, it means slow down because you are about to meet, you're not about to meet somebody who's supposed to come on. They're, they're running from the other theater. We never played the emergency dog, but it always amused us that it was there. You know? So the actors going back and forth weren't stopped by fans asking for autographs and slow them, <laughs> slow them down. <laughs> no, they were, they, were, they, were, they were pretty good. And, and indeed, um, what is very interesting is, is, is actors will sometimes say to you, oh, well, uh, the, 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 the play varied in time tonight because of the laughs or, you know, something else or something. Always an excuse for varying times. In fact, the actors in those plays, to my knowledge, and certainly in the productions I've seen, kept an incredible tightness of time. You know, and, and, and imagine it: if you've got one minute thirty between two entrances, and one of the shows slows down by forty-five seconds, and the other show mm. speeds up by forty-five mm. seconds, that act is not going to make the entrance. So we're talking about quite narrow limits. And cutting it that close, does that uh, excite you as a director, as a challenge, to make sure that it all happens? Like you know, running railroad trains, making sure they don't collide <laughs> at the intersection, that sort of thing. Yes, it was fun. I, I mean, I, <laughs> the back of my mind when I'm writing, um, however harrowing, and some of my plays have been quite 
quite dark, but there's always a sense of fun there. I, I've always felt that that one of the thing, one of the ingredients you should you should put in a play is 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 enjoyment, is entertainment. Um, I I work full time now. Um, I have done for many years in a in a seaside town on the northeast coast of England, and it's a holiday town, and people come there primarily to to have a good time, and they're they're on holiday, and and you can't. With the best will in the world, you can winter a little more. You can't give them Ibsen all summer. You know, it, it, they get a bit depressed. So I try, I try to give them plays which will entertain them and amuse them, and at the same time, perhaps have something more to say. Uh, it is possible to do both. Um, but as you raise that, it, it's worth noting that there is a period in your writing, uh, mostly in the '80s, where a number of critics talked about you having entered a darker phase with some of your plays. And is that something that you were consciously aware of? Is that something that, that other people made you aware of? And and do you think that's a, a fair comment, just in response to what you're saying, because those were plays that were premiering at the Stephen Joseph as well? They were getting darker. And one of the reasons for that, I mean, it's easy to analyze in retrospect. I didn't say, oh, no, time to get dark. But I did say... Um, my first few of my plays, How the Other Half Loves, relatively speaking, particularly, but I think quite a few of the early ones were very, very um, plot-driven. You know, they had they had intricate structures which were mostly narrative, mostly to do with and then and then and then. And, and I discovered round about the Norman conquests where I had to slow down because there were three plays meshed there. I slowed down sufficiently to say I think I should have a little bit more confidence in writing plays that are character-based. I think even with character-based plays, you need movement. You can't have a character who's static for an entire two-hour period. Otherwise, it's very boring. But but the movement can happen within the character rather than perhaps quite so much desperate action. And once you do that, you start to write characters that are substantially deeper than the ones that are permanently careering around trying to avoid each other uh, and hiding in cupboards. And I began to write as a result, I think I w- widened my writer's emotional palette. You know, I was beginning to write the 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 the, the, the mid turns, um, which I sort of avoided in my early days. I didn't quite have confidence, but as you say, by the middle period, the, the absent friends is just between ourselves. And I I was really beginning to 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 explore how dark I could go, but I think then I moved out of that. Because I then became very interested um, in in running the two together. I think when I started in theatre, there were in, in England certainly at that time there were there were sort of almost strictly divided. There was the comedies and the tragedies, and then the sort of detective plays in between. You know, and um, the comedies. I remember working in rep, and uh, the, the director used to have weekly rep, which we had at that time, one week for a play and, and 52 plays a year. It was an incredible schedule. I didn't work for there, there for very long, about six months. But in that time, I noticed how the approach to comedy and the approach to so-called tragedy varied. Tragedy was played very slowly, uh, usually underlit, and uh, quite quietly. Comedy had all the lights up to full. It was played very, very fast. And um, and it was quite loud. And I remember as as a young man of 17 or 18 standing in the wings week after week and thinking, I think I'd really love to write a comedy that was quite underlit and was played very quietly. 
and could perhaps be quite slow occasionally. And then it was only a small step to thinking, you can combine those both in a play. You know, you don't have to write one or the other. I mean, it's, it's nothing new. It's like discovering the wheel again. But I think at that stage, we'd almost polarised into different streams. And so it was quite nice to begin to weave the comedy and the tragedy back together again. Now, the show that we mentioned before, the one that has just now opened at the uh, Brits Off Broadway at 59 East 59 here in New York, Private Fears in Public Places, uh, which is basically, I would say, a character study of six and a half people, six people seen on stage yes. and one offstage character, the father of one of the onstage mm-hmm. people. Where does that fit into this continuum from dark to comedy and everything in between, mysteries and all that? How would you characterize Private Fears in Public Places? It's quite a departure for me in many ways. First of all, in structure, um, it's got uh, – it, it, it has no interval. It's a, it's a straight-through play. And dozens and dozens of scenes, Fif- very small 53 scenes. 53 or 54 scenes, I think. Um, it's, it, I, I described it as quite filmmaking that I couldn't think of another term for it. it but the scenes overlap uh, and, 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 and dovetail and, and they move very fast. So it's not, I hope it isn't too hiccupy. But what it, what it does do is it, it, it allows me to chart the lives of, of, of different combinations of people. And it's a play, I, I suppose. It, yeah, it is, it is funny. It's, it's also quite sad. Um, uh, I, I think it depends on how you perceive the characters. I don't try to make a big statement, say this is a very tragic play. Um, it, it undoubtedly is, a, when you're writing about loneliness and people's insecurity in, in public and their secret fears and likes, and it's, it, it covers a f- number of themes. It's also about, which I was talking about today, about um, parents. It's about what happens to you when you're, as a child, um, all a lot of the characters. I won't say all the characters. But a lot of the characters in the play are influenced by unseen parents. I mean, the, uh, you mentioned the offstage father, who is very much there, who's who's bedridden, who's cantankerous, who's difficult, and this poor little barman is, spends his life looking after him and paying for carers while he uh, goes out to work. And the uh, barman bartender is his son. Yes, that's right. And he um, he has a uh, he he has a he ha- he has inbuilt obligation to look after that man, even though actually he, he by, by, by the, the way the story is told, obviously didn't treat them too well when he was, he was, he was a young man. Um, so, um, and then another one is influenced by parents and so on. And I think, I think the, the, this is all, all part of the theme. Um, but it's, I think if I sum it up very quickly, it's, it's the domino effect about... Um, yeah. Any action we take as, 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 as people can have, potentially have uh, a reaction uh, and cause a reaction to people we don't even know. Um, we are, well, if you like, we're all linked is what the play says. I found myself thinking of all things of La Ronde, of yeah. a series of characters as you go through scenes, you know, yeah. each affecting the next. Yes, it comes back. It's not a hundred miles away from that the theme I pursued in House and Garden. When I once said, when I was writing it, uh, we're all walk-ons in other people's lives. I may be the waiter who serves you at table and is an unimportant character in your lives, uh, in that I I probably exchange a dozen words with you. Uh, but when I get home, 
I become a central character in my family's, hopefully, in my family's lives. And so there is that sense that we see both the onstage and the offstage characters of these people. You see the, the bartender serving behind the bar. He's a fairly bland, uh, polite, you know, just listen, half listening to his customer. Um, but when he gets home, we then see all the other layers of him, which is, I think, very interesting. It's worth noting that while your plays, John listed at the beginning of the program, certainly those that have played on Broadway, and your plays have had countless productions in the United States, mm-hmm. off-Broadway, lots of regional productions. But it's only a few times that you have come over either to direct your own work or to bring the Stephen Joseph Theatre Company from Scarborough performing the work. When you come over, because I know you don't typically see the shows that you didn't direct. You're not coming over every time somebody stages an Akeborn work. That would be a career. <laughs> um, what has been the reaction to your work here in the U.S. and how do you think your your work is perceived in the U.S.? Is it different than it's perceived in England? I think so. One of the great myths that started when I was writing was uh, when I first started to gain attention, gain the attention of, of, of Americans was, was that I was the English Neil Simon, which put me at a great disadvantage because people came, I think, quite often to see Neil Simon, which I probably am not. I am a great admirer of, of Neil Simon's and I've directed some of his plays over in England, but I certainly would never uh, deem to be any, anything like him. I mean, his, um, I don't have his, his, his great gift, which he's used, of course, in some of his most successful plays, for instance, of the one-liner. My plays go for pages without even a joke. Um, what I, I tend to be is, is more character-based and more shaped. I think, I think once, that, once that died off, and I think it did after a bit, they said, oh, well, he's not Neil Simon, so he must be something else. Um, it was difficult to know. I mean... M- Actually, considering I, th- I think they're quite simple, they're notoriously difficult to stage. Um, people tend often to, to to come in either too heavily or too lightly on them, um, and and it's not just just here in the states. I mean, the French play my stuff incredibly lightly, like Boulevard Farce, because they can't really encompass that that darkness. The Germans play them very, very slowly and very, very darkly, and I think too darkly quite often. I guess it was a three-and-three-quarter-hour production of a play of my uh, season's greetings, which uh, which I did recently, and it, it, it took me just over two hours to direct. What happened to the other hour, I still don't know in the German production. No, it's a longer language, but come on. Um, so it, it is difficult to, to, to say what people perceive. I mean, people come up to me even in England and say, I, I didn't enjoy a play of yours I saw. And I say, where did you see it? And they say, oh, in Plymouth. And I say, oh, yes. Um, what did you, do you enjoy? And they describe the, the, the unenjoyable event that they witnessed that night. And I say, i sorry, I cannot even begin to defend that because I don't recognize most of it. You know, it's, 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 it's a concept which, which mystifies me. Um, We've made several mentions to the Stephen Joseph Theater in Scarborough, England. I think just for clarification, uh, it's what we in this country would call a regional theater. Yes. I guess, right. And you are the artistic director. That's right. Of the Stephen Joseph Theater in Scarborough. In Scarborough. And of late, I guess for a number of years now, the work that you've been writing, you've been premiering at that theater. 
Yes. I mean, uh, Stephen Joseph, I should just fill in on him. He, he, sure. he was the man who started it. Um, and he started it in a, a public library in this seaside town. And the seaside town was up to, this, up to that point famous for its seaside entertainments. It was a variety, uh, some very, very broad farces. It had about six theatres running, all, all with, with popular TV comics and dancers and all, all, all of this. You know. and, and where in England is Scarborough? What, what, it's what? on the northeast coast. If, if you, I always tell people if you, if you get in a car and drive north um, and you get to York and turn right and you <laughs> just stop before you hit the North Sea, that's where we are. Uh, and um, it's, uh, it's in Yorkshire. Uh, which is a, the independent state of Yorkshire. Um, it's the English equivalent of, of, of Texas, I think. I mean, the biggest state. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I, I, I joined a company up there in, in 1957. Um, it's incidentally uh, celebrating its, uh, its, its 50th anniversary this year. But anyway, this was run by a man called Stephen Joseph, and he had introduced two very important concepts to... to to, to English theatre, both of which had vanished. I don't say they'd never been there, but they had vanished. One was, one was theatre in the round, uh, which he had discovered or rediscovered on his exchange scheme to the States. He, he came over um, as a Cambridge student and he saw his first theatre in the round. And he, I don't know where he saw it, somewhere like Iowa. And uh-huh. he said, hey, this is, this is interesting form of theatre. I, 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 I think it's worth pursuing. Came back and he started it. He restarted it professionally, and we were the guinea pigs. We were in a temporary setup, and we were very unpopular. We, theater establishment is, was notoriously conservative at that point, and they they, just, they thought of this new experiment as being meaningless and ridiculous. But Stephen persevered with it, and what he shrewdly had hit on was, A, it's economic, which meant it, it was a much easier proposition to run on experimental work, and the second thing was it brought the audience incredibly closer to the experience of theatre. And before that, the stranglehold of 2,000-seat theatres, where if you were a student and if you didn't have very much money, I, I, my first few plays I saw professionally, I, I only had the management's word for it, that the actors were A, live, and B, they were who they said they were. They provided you with binoculars, opera glasses to wow. look at them through. And uh, because the, th- the actors no longer had the voices that the theatres demanded, they were also piped up there via loudspeakers. So I, I, I felt Stephen had a very good point here. You know, there were actors, three-dimensional and in colour, and literally able to spit at you in the front row. You know, they were so close. Um, and his other plank, which was almost as important, or I think for me more important, was he believed very much that the, the writer... The playwright belonged within the fabric of the theatre. Again, at that point, with a few notable exceptions, an old coward perhaps, but writers were people who sat in cottages in the Orkney Islands and wrote plays and then sent them, and they were done, and they got invited to the first night. And if they were quite famous, they probably came to the read-through. But they were not involved in the playmaking process. And Stephen said, not only should they be involved, they should also ideally be working in the same theatre as the actors and everybody else. And so, because he couldn't afford to run, and I think sensibly, ten playwrights, you know, sitting around doing nothing but write plays, he sort of inveigled people who were working there, the box office manager was one of them, I was another one, 
the right place for the company. And um, we, we, we responded. And he did an entire new play season the first year I was there and, uh, and continued to do them. And uh, what were you there as? You were part of the company, but you mm. said you were inveigled to write plays. I came as a stage manager. I was looking to be an actor. And um, the first play I wrote was, uh, was an attempt to, to launch my acting career. I, I wrote myself an enormous part. You know, <laughs> really completely egotistical. Uh, and I'd, I'd learned enough about plays by then to know, you know okay, so the, 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 the big part doesn't come. There was a three-act structure. And I came on with my major character at the end of Act One. And the, most of Act One was spent building me up. They would say, he's a great guy. You'll see him when he arrives. You know, he's terrific. So then I arrived, end of Act One. And immediately there was a curtain. So there I was. And then Act Two I stayed on. And Act Three I stayed on. And I never went off. And I had the curtain line at the end of the play. And it was fairly successful, which was probably not a very good thing for me because I then went on and wrote three more. And it was only about fourth, fifth play in. I began to think... Um, Maybe I should stop this. I mean, maybe maybe I'll just either finish up writing one-man shows, or actually, what's really happening is that my writing is improving and my acting is not improving. So I gently elbowed the actor in me to the sidelines, um, where I eventually vanished. And at the same time, Stephen Joseph, who was still around then, uh, had encouraged me into directing which for an actor is like the poison chalice. If you sip from the directing chalice, you probably don't have the taste quite again for acting. You just want to get on to direct. So as I say, the two careers, the writing and the acting, then developed. This is all Stephen. He was an amazing man. I mean, you know, I, without him, a lot of my life would never have happened. And, um, and when he became ill, which he did in a comparatively short time, 19, he died in 1967, um, I um, I was that by then directing sort of quite a lot of the work and also writing quite a lot of it. And the people who ran the theatre, his, his administrators, rang me up and said, uh, would you like to take it over? And uh, I, I directed the season for a couple of years. And in the so early 70s, I, I took up the challenge, mainly because I didn't want to see Stephen's good idea die. And, and it looked like it would because he... He was the, I, I mean, I, I probably knew him better than most people, and I, I thought I knew where he wanted to go with it. And so I started, uh, I said, I'll do it for five years, you know, just just to keep it keep it going. And uh, there we are, still here. <laughs> Had you, before he started, well, he was, I guess it's fair to say, your, your mentor, mm. uh, Stephen Joseph. Had you ever even considered writing or directing? Because over here, it's kind of a cliche that every actor wants to direct at some point. Certainly the ones in Hollywood all want to direct. I, um, I never considered directing. Um, but I did write even at school. I was writing plays. And I, I suppose I was directing and I was telling people what to do because that, I'd written the plays. I, I did have a couple of plays done when I was at school. And I, my, my mother um, was a professional writer and not a playwright. She wrote, she wrote for, for, for women's magazines. She wrote very successfully for them. And uh, so I, I, I suppose I was brought up because we were a single-parent family for some years. Uh, my papa eloped with a violinist. Uh, so I, um, I got very used to, to having a, a mother who, A, 
earned our money and paid for my food and schooling, and B, she earned it by, as soon as breakfast was over, pulling out a huge Underwood typewriter, putting it on the table and saying, you know, be quiet, I'm working. And, and she would type till lunchtime. And I, I always say if, if my mother had made pastry, I'd probably be a pastry cook. But I just <laughs> saw her doing that. And one day I asked if I could have a little typewriter of my own for my birthday, and she bought me a little portable. And I, I banged away at stories at that point, uh, sitting I always remember sitting under the table. There was two of us typing away in this little kitchen. Uh, this is very strange. Uh, I, I, if, if anyone who says parents don't have an effect on you. <laughs> you are in a very unique position as a playwright who is also an artistic director mm-hmm. and as an artistic director who also is a director and directs not only his own work but other people's work. How do you, as as a real master of playwriting, look at these scripts that must turn up on the doorstep and how do you, you know, what are the kinds of works that you look for? Because now in, the, in England certainly there are people who even talk about plays in the Akeborn style. And then as a director, how do you choose works other than your own that you'd like to direct? Well, it has to be said that I did make a decision a couple of years back that I would stop directing other people's work because I found it was begin. I was beginning to to slow down, um, and uh, I, I I thought to myself, look, I, I you know you you have intimations of mortality, so you think, wait a minute, wait a minute, what what do I do that nobody else can do? Let's 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 make a rational decision here, and the one thing I. I can do that as far as I know no one else can do is write my own plays. So that had to take top priority. Second on the list, and even that I, I suppose I could delegate but very reluctantly, was direct my own plays. And third came directing other people's plays. So I, I, I've really stopped. But what I used to look for, and, and that was the problem, as I, people would say, I've just been told I write plays exactly like yours and I enclose one and I'd say, what we need least in this theatre is another play like mine. What we need is something that isn't mine, and I would send it straight back again. Um, I look for plays that 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 gave an audience some variety. You know? Otherwise, you'd, you'd you'd finish up with 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 awful imitations of your own stuff. Um, I, I look for plays. In general, the only the only common commonality I expect from a play is that it relates. In some way, it has relevance to the audience, and it's a quite a wide audience. It must be because my plays do seem to relate to uh, to quite a wide audience, which is, suggests that Scarborough is quite a wide audience. Um, but I say it, it's got to matter. You, it doesn't matter if it's a comedy. It doesn't matter if it's if it's a tragedy. Um, it has to matter. As soon as you stop caring about the people in the play, you leave. Um, and if you put an interval in, they'll leave at the interval. Um, and that that's the only thing I really look for. Beyond that, um, you know, uh, I, I have a passionate belief myself that, that theatre is, is primarily about people. Uh, it is a people industry. Um, and uh, yes, of course, themes are very important and, and, and issues are very important to discuss. But if, if it is just dry issues and dry themes... Um, or big scenery, and you forget the most integral, central part of a, of a theatre experience, which is an actor and <clears throat> his/her audience. Then you are you are missing the point. It seems to me. 
uh, and all the great plays, in my view, whether it be the Hamlet or be the um, you know Death of a Salesman, they all involve you as an audience, and you care about the plight of the character, and that that's really all I look for. In in working, you basically I've I've heard come up with a title for the show, a design for it. You've got the show cast, perhaps, already before you write the first word. And then you kind of hunker down for a couple of weeks in January and, and just write. Is that is that basically the way that you've been working? Used to be. Used to be? Used to be when I was a young, reckless young man, yes. Um, nowadays, I actually write the play first. Oh, you do um, write first. Uh, yes. Although, funnily enough, private fears in public places um I formed a company to do a play of mine last year uh, called Drowning on Dry Land. <clears throat> and um, um, the six of the, well, it's a seven, it was a seven hand, but six of them stayed on with me. And uh, halfway through the season, I said to the, the sixth who were going to stay with us, uh, listen, guys, I've had a, an idea for another play. Um, and I wonder if you'd... Um, You'd be interested. I, I, I did. I did say if, if you're not, if you're not, I'll, I'll save it. And they said, "Yeah, we're interested." Um, and so I wrote *Private Fears*, and it was really in response to them. I mean, I didn't, I didn't quite cast them all in it, but the, it was written while they were around the building, and it was it was quite it was quite exciting to give them to them. Except I had a nasty moment. What the hell if they don't like it? You know, they've just <laughs> said yes to a play they haven't read. But uh, it was a touching faith. Now, the without giving away too much of the story, Private Fears in Public Places is basically about six, six and a half people counting the offstage father mm -hmm. and their own personal dilemmas in their lives, things that they're going through. Are they based on real people or did you just kind of conjure them? I think, they're, I think they are based on real people. It's very hard because uh, fragments of people tend to sort of stick around it uh, and um, – a lot of character. A lot of the characters are me. I mean, I, it would be, I think most most playwrights would say that, that there's a lot of themselves in every character. Sometimes to lesser, or you know, sometimes it's my alter ego. Sometimes my id gets in there. Um, one of the characters, the offstage character, I actually play. But so, <laughs> mm -hmm. is there is there more of you in one of the characters than any of the others? Um, Ambrose, the bartender, for example, or. Difficult to say. Uh, I think. I think probably not. Um, he's there's a there's a part of him that is there's a part of there's a part of me that is probably the young soldier um, for a long time ago, um, and there's certainly a part of me that I I fear on my dollar days. Who's uh, who's who's the house agent? Stuart, the house agent, who's um, out the real estate agent, beg your pardon, who, uh, who is a desperately lonely man trapped living alone with his sister, I mean, living a, a solitary life with his sister. Um, and I wouldn't say that they're based on, on individuals, but there are, there are aspects of individuals. So if one of your friends or relatives went to see it, they wouldn't say, Alan, that's me up on stage or you're portraying? I don't think so. They might... I, I, the, the, the odd thing is, you never know till somebody says it, and you go, <laughs> "Oh, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm like many writers. I'm an open tape recorder. I just record and record and record, and occasionally, 
I genuinely think there's something I made up. And then somebody, somebody turned to me. It wasn't my, my, my wife, actually. It was someone else before I was married who said, she turned to me halfway through and she said, why have you put this in a play? And I said, what do you mean? She said, this is a conversation we had, and it was a private conversation. And I said, well, it's okay. Nobody knows that. And she said, I do. No. And it was like, you know, I just put a picture of her with no clothes on and pinned it up on the wall, you know. And I, I thought, that's dreadful. What do we do? I mean, I then promptly wrote a play about it, a play called Henceforward, about a, 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 a creative artist who just plunders his friends, you know. And um, it's very interesting. And is, is it legitimate? Can anyone trust you again? I want to come back to what you were talking about with the idea that in, in the case of, of private fears in public places, you you wrote the work with a specific group of actors in mind once they were already assembled. And you had done that a couple of years ago in a slightly different way when you wrote what was originally a pair of related plays, Damsels in Distress. And once you had them up and going, you thought, I like this group. I'd like to do a third play. Can you just talk – Tell us a little about just even that process, but it seems an unusual experience. It's, it's one thing to hear about a play written for an actor or an actress. It's something else entirely to hear about a play written for a group of actors. Well, of course, Scarborough is 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 is, is primarily a, a a company theater. It doesn't have star plus three or two stars plus seven. And that's why sometimes my plays are notoriously shunned by stars because they, 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 they say I counted the lines and it really isn't enough of a part to interest me. Um, but what I, what I get instead from that is, is rather than the individual, I get a, I get a, um, I get a buzz from the dynamic of a company. It, it's making some sort of group noise to me and, and excites me. And fortunately, I, I think in my life, I've, I, one of the th- abilities I've had is to put together uh, uh, with help, I have to say, you know, it's not just me solo, but 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 putting together a group of people who respect each other's work and enjoy each other's company on stage. And God knows what happens to them off stage, but on stage they really like being there, you know, like a good football team and playing with each other and and finding um, sort of a, a a sort of group strength. I mean, the the, the sum of the parts is not as is is greater than the individuals, um, and that does happen with a company, and I that is why I've of late I've resisted um, sometimes West End attempts to break the team up and say oh this is a good part for you know X because however good X is what happens to Y Z and and A B C they 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 suddenly become sidelined by by a, a mega talent above the bill, um, and it. This has meant that I've, I've, I've written always for companies. And occasionally, as you say, in the case of Damsels, in the case of, of this year's company, the group of them have, have, have excited me enough to go. And it's, it's the great privilege of uh, – there is a responsibility, make no, make no mistake about running a company, but there's also a great privilege in being a writer in a company and knowing, you know, tomorrow I can, I can write in the schedule – as I often do, AA70, which is Alan Aikman's 70th play, will be sitting in the schedules there. No one knows what it is, not even I do. 
It's just there. It opens July 1st and it closes September. And it'll be playing in repertoire with two plays we probably do know about. And everyone's quite happy to go with that. And, and we've, we've been talking mostly about uh, private fears in public places, which is your current show. That's why you're here in New York is to, to get that yes. up and running. But also, I mentioned at the very beginning that uh, Manhattan Theatre Club will be presenting Absurd Person Singular roughly three decades after it first played in this country in the mid-70s, 74 through 76, about a year and a half or so. Uh, and that'll be sometime in the 2005, 2006 season. Mm-hmm. Will you be involved with that, with directing that, if they ask, perhaps? No. No, I, no I would. Meadow is planning to direct it as she has. Yes. I mean, we should say that, that here in New York, perhaps the greatest mm-hmm. champion of your work over the years has uh, in the not-for-profit region is, is Lynn has done a number of your plays and, and directs been, many of them herself. Lynn's been a great champion and uh, very grateful uh, because, in fact, it's, it's a very good way for my plays to get seen. I, I, think, I think the Manhattan Theatre Club is, is, although it's a very different organization to the Scarborough one, nonetheless, I think some of, some of the ethic of, of that company is very similar to ours, the way they approach their, their work. And um, I've... I've um, uh, I, but I wouldn't be involved in it. I don't. It's too. It, it's. Uh, it's not. It's not a play. I. Well, I, I guess I might revive it one day, but I. I I'm not, not. Not. Not at the moment. I do. I do have a policy of reviving my work. It, it, if you've got a writing career that spans now, I don't know, four or five decades, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of people who weren't alive when you first wrote them, um, and also, or even uh, weren't alive when you. I'm doing time and time again this summer at Scarborough. It's the next play I'm going to do there, which is a revival of a 1971, 72 play. I mean, my my juvenile actors were were not even gleams in their parents' eyes when I wrote it. It's a bit creepy um, trying to explain to them about the 70s. And when you revisit a play, because you've done that, as you say, you do that periodically – do do you the the senior playwright look at the work of a younger playwright and tinker with it? I made a decision a long time ago not to do that. Um, uh, there is a, a fond hope in me that I've improved as a dramatist over the years, but I I wouldn't bank on it. And some of the work that I wrote all those years ago is like another younger man's work, and. Uh, I might I might tweak a line if it if it's so anachronistic or something, but I mean, and some of them I mean I revived way upstream uh, and chorus of disapproval uh, recently, and both of those I was able to leave in their period and do very little with. Time and time again is a different matter because it it it. it the, the role of men and women have changed since that play was written. And I, I always note that my very early plays, and it's interesting how, how the social scene has changed. None of the women have jobs. They just don't work. Mm-hmm. And, of course, in that day, it was perfectly normal for a woman just to, to, to give up everything and go and you know, be a housewife or something. And, and the, the ones that were working were just waiting to marry and then they, they, so they could stop working. And that is, that is something which is complete anathema to the modern young woman. She'd say, well, what's going on here? Why, why do they all want and, but if, So I have, I have to do that time and time again where that happens in, in, in period. And I have to say, listen, we've got to have the costumes. We've got, we've got to tell the audience that this is, this is a historical piece. A couple of years ago, you took the time to write a book about writing plays, which certainly I can recommend to anybody who's interested in writing plays. But what 
what is the the boil it down for what you think is behind writing a great play? Huh. I don't know. I've just I've just written a new a new play actually called Improbable Fiction, and it's about a writers group, and one of them, one of the writers who's 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 mercifully I've never had this experience, but is completely blocked. She's she can't write. And somebody says, why, why don't you just get started? And she says, the trouble is, as soon as I start to write, I, I ruin it. The play is so perfect in my head, or, or the book in this case, and, um, and it's all there, and it's, it's pristine. And then I start writing, and I sully it, and I, eventually I ruin it um, by writing it, um, and it makes no sense. Um, so, But I think the best play is to me have a they combine everything i mean they have they have humor they have and and, and, and d- despite what critics do to distill it, it it belongs running alongside in any good threat it, it runs like a seam of coal in a mine alongside the granite of 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 of, uh, of tragedy um and it has that dimension it it has good narrative that holds an audience, and, and by narrative I don't just mean, you know, oh, he did this, she did that, he did that. I mean, the, the character develops and you want to know what happens. I, I, I think it's all, it's all to do with, with, with good storytelling, really. Um, all the best plays for me tell great stories, and they take you on journeys that you didn't quite anticipate going on. Um, uh, you may have thought you did, and I did. I've discovered of late in, that, that audiences love to try and second guess you. They say, and, and and the greatest compliment Yorkshire audiences pay me is they say, "Well, I never guessed that." <laughs> um, and it's like you've just done a detective story or something. But but actually, what you, they mean is that the story did a twist or a flip or, or went somewhere and took them took them with you. Uh, and that's 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 good play. We alluded very briefly earlier to By Jeeves, which was a musical that you wrote, a musical comedy. You wrote the book and you wrote the lyrics as well and you directed the show. Um, our listeners to this radio station are certainly familiar with By Jeeves. We play both the London version and the New York version of it. Any plans to write any future musicals? I've written quite a lot, actually. Now that, now that's the only one I've ever written with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, in fact, it was the very first musical I ever wrote and then uh, subsequently rewrote uh, 30 years later. Uh, when Andrew, Andrew never lo- give, never lets up, if he has a, what he thinks is a good idea, he'll chase it, and he'll chase you if you're part of it. Um, I have I have stopped writing musicals. Um, I'm, it's a it's a very I have a very odd dilemma. I, I like watching musicals, some of them, um, and you know I, I've had some great evenings watching musicals. I don't actually really enjoy writing them. Um, I find I find a it's just, it's it's a bit it's a, well, I say it's a bit too much like hard work, but it, they really are they really are devils to get right, and I, I have a feeling that um, uh, I'm not a great the world's natural collaborator. Um, I do have trouble. I've probably had it my own way for so long, and uh, there were serious serious moments when when I think the team wondered if if. Either Andrew or I would kill each other first, you know. And he's a man who's quite rightly and justifiably has has his own way quite a lot of the time. 
And he met a man who is not only directing, but writing the lyrics and the book, who also expects to get his own way. And there was this immovable object and this irresistible force sort of banging our <laughs> heads in the middle of the... We, we, we step around each other quite neatly. Um, and I, th- I, think, I think the show is, was, was very charming and, and, and very un-Andrew and very un-me. We met in the middle somewhere. And, um, it, 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 but it, I, I do think shows have a time and a place. And it, wasn't, it didn't have a time or a place opening next door to the theater with the producers in it for a start. I mean, it was like, well, why are we paying roughly the same price for a show with you know hundreds of people and huge numbers and wonderful dance routines and things for a play with three men in a cardboard box on the stage you know it was quite a sophisticated joke but it was it was not an immediate broadway joke um and small scale musicals probably aren't really broadway's bag and its happiest days were undoubtedly when i did it in 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 the theater in scarborough um when it was very charming very unexpected uh, full of beautiful songs, uh, and and nobody expected any more. But then they were paying, you know, ten pounds a seat, not fifty pounds a seat, English money. You know, I mean, it's, it was a, it's a difference. Um, the expectation for it was was much smaller, um, but it was great fun to do. Well, I introduced you at the beginning of our chat. I introduced you as Sir Alan Akeborn with knighthood. Any special privileges that you receive? Do you get to cut ahead in a queue at the bank? <laughs> I don't get. I don't get it. It's the, the funny thing is that people these days don't quite know how to use it. Um, certainly in England, and um, they, they, they. Um, first of all, you know, you're, if if you want to address me properly, you say "Good morning, Sir Alan." Now that is incredibly familiar. So people tend to say, good morning, Sir Akeborn, which is immediately wrong uh, because th- you, that's not the way to say it. But, so people don't like, don't like saying Sir Alan because that makes them sound as if they're you know, being over-familiar with you. Um, so the, the, they, ha- they compromise it. They either say Sir Akeborn. They don't bother with a Sir at all. Or uh, as it was summed up, I, the day I got the knighthood was on the New Year's Honours list a few years ago. And I, I, was, I came out of my front door walking along my street and I, I passed one of my neighbors, and he, he, he saw me coming, and he said, congratulations on the knighthood, Mr. Eggborn. And I thought, oh, I see. That's the way it goes. I'm, not, I'm the same guy, but you know, I've just got a knighthood stuck on it. So with that guidance, I will say uh, I'll take the kind of the middle ground and say thank you, Sir Alan Eggborn, <laughs> for being with us today on Downstage Center. My pleasure. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding everyone that these programs and all of the educational and media programs of the American Theatre Wing are available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>